Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Hello, I'm excited to do this. So this is actually the funny thing. This was a message that I had been planning to teach back in March 2020. Do we remember March 2020? I was invited to Wisconsin to actually, Abigail and Rondale invited me to their house of prayer in Wisconsin at the time. I was supposed to teach on priesthood. Then March 2020. So this message is two years in the making and I'm really glad I could do this tonight. So I want to pray for us again before, mostly for me, before um, we jump in. Jesus, we love you. We say that you are good. We say that you are worthy. I ask that as we um, get into this tonight, that you would open your word to us, that you would um, show us wondrous things out of your word, that we would um, just see new perspectives that we haven't considered before, and old truths would make more sense than they ever have, and you would just impact our hearts um, with the truth of your word as we talk about priesthood and your calling um, to us to serve you as priests. In Jesus' name. So, as I said, tonight I want to talk about priesthood and our calling to minister to the Lord in primarily um, prayer and worship. And there's some overflow of that in some other ways as well. Um, but you're, you're called to minister to the Lord. This is one of the primary callings of what it means to be a Christian. This is part of the definition of being a Christian. You're a priest. So if a new believer gets saved, you're discipling someone, they're like, great, I, I'm saved, you know, Jesus forgave my sins, now what? This can be one of the first things that you tell them. You're a priest. You're called to, to minister and worship and love Jesus in your prayer and worship. This is uh, the idea of God's people being priests. It's throughout the entire scripture, definitely heavily in the Old Testament. It pops up a lot in the New Testament as well. So we're going to trace this storyline from Genesis to Revelation. Whenever I teach, I'm very much a storyteller. So like any topic you give me, I will find a way to think of it as a story. So we are going to trace the story of the priesthood uh, from Genesis through Revelation um, and see it dotted all along the path. Um, There's a few verses that I absolutely love just talking about the priesthood. Uh, First Chronicles 19.11, do not be negligent now for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him and to burn incense. Stand, serve, minister, and burn. There's a song I love that has that chorus, to stand, serve, minister, and burn. Um, and that's in a nutshell what we're doing as, as priests. We're standing before the Lord, we're, we're uh, ministering to his heart, we're blessing his name. Um, um, then we're offering that that incense, which we were singing about tonight. Let incense arise. We're not talking about like literal smoke that we light a fire on the stage. We're singing. We're giving him our worship. And then somehow in the spiritual realm, it becomes some kind of literal smoke in the throne room of God. But that's what we're doing. So I do want to make the distinction. Um, the kind of priesthood we're talking about is distinct from priests in liturgical traditions that we know of today. We're all familiar with the idea of Catholic priests or other denominations that have priests in their like church org chart. That's not what we're talking about. That's fine. I don't. I doesn't bother me at all if those churches, those groups, want to you know have a designated person that their title is priest for their congregation. Whatever. That's great. That works for them. That's awesome. Um, but we want to take a step 
step back and kind of look at um, just the biblical overview of how the Bible defines uh, our priesthood, that we are all called to be priests. So we want to make sure we're coming to that definition um, through, through Bible study and not just from whatever ideas we picked up from our culture. So when God established the nation of Israel, he called them all a kingdom of priests. And we know, of course, there was the tabernacle, the temple. There were certain individuals who were uniquely called to be priests as a vocation. But really, it was more than that. All of the people of Israel were called to be priests. And I know there's more there that I haven't fully studied out because people have been telling me like different things. Like, you know, at Mount Sinai, really what happened, it was really supposed to be like this. And then it ended up like, I know there's more there that I don't even have full revelation on. But there's the whole, the entire congregation was originally meant to be to be a priesthood. Um, and then there was the certain portion that, like I said, did that as their vocation. It was about 3% of the population. And I'm sure that's a very rough number, but one tribe out of 12, the Levites, and then only the men, and then only men of a certain age. So roughly, by doing some general math, that's about 3% of the population did prayer and worship as their full-time job title. And I was thinking of that, what if we had that in the church today? Today we're a little bit, if we're around the prayer room, we've heard, we're familiar with the concept of intercessory missionaries. The prayer room here has certain staff members that we do this full time as our job. Um, and a lot of places that's unheard of. You guys happen to be listening to a message at the prayer room tonight, so we've all heard of that at least a little bit. But what if like in every church of, of a thousand, there were 30 full time intercessory missionaries? What was that, if that was just like the normal percentage of how ministry worked in the body of Christ, that would be so cool. I don't know how what the percentage is right now, but I doubt it's 3%. It's probably a lot lower than that. 3% would be awesome. So Israel had 3% of their population who were set apart to, to serve God as full-time vocational priests, but the whole community was to think of themselves as priests. The whole community was supposed to live with that mindset of my life is set apart um, to minister to the Lord. Exodus 19, um, 5 and 6. Out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God set them apart as priests because he wanted them for himself. This was God's desire to, to have them as his possession, to have them set apart to belong to him, to, uh, which is why he called them a nation of priests. This wasn't just something he wanted them to do. It was something he wanted them to be um, in relation to himself because he wanted, he wanted their hearts. He wanted to be able to give himself to them and have their hearts in return. The same language, we see the same language in the New Testament talking about the church as, an, as a kingdom of priests. And this isn't, again, just like it wasn't just the Levites in the nation of Israel, this isn't just the intercessory missionaries. So when we're talking about um, priesthood, there are some full-time priests in this room, full-time intercessory missionaries, and a bunch of people who aren't. I'm talking to all of us equally. We are all called as priests. Whatever your day job is, whatever it says on your LinkedIn profile, you're a priest. All of us are called to be priests. I'm going to read that verse. Here it is. 1 Peter 2, 5 
Um, And then verse 9, top of page 2. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. And We just read almost the exact same verse over in Exodus 19. It's practically the same language. Uh, A chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation. God's extending that language that he once applied to Israel, and now that is extended to everyone who's in the body of Messiah, that we are all invited into this priesthood. When you got born again, you got inducted into a priesthood. Congratulations, whether or not you realized it, that is part of who you are. That is who you are as a saved person. This person like saved day one, they're a priest. Just sometimes takes us a while to figure out what that means and how to, how to live that, but it's true for all of us. King David. I had a really cool realization about um, King David just a week or two ago. We talk about King David a lot related to the house of prayer, that he he's the one who said that famous verse that makes it into all of our worship songs and on the back of our t-shirt, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, inquire in his temple. That's King David. King David was not a Levite. <laughs> King David is like the father of the house of prayer. He wasn't even a Levite. He wasn't even a priest. He was part of a priestly nation, but King David had a full-time day job working for the government. He was the king. He, he had a lot of assignments and responsibilities and a lot of things in his life that really had nothing to do with priesthood. But something in David's heart, he just... It's almost like he wished he was born a Levite and he just decided that in his life he's going to do everything possible to live a life as a priest as much as he could get away with. And he, he pushed that envelope. He's like, how much can I get away with acting like a priest even though I'm from the tribe of Judah and I'm supposed to be a king? He just snuck himself in there as often as he could. I think David actually serves as an example more for... Um, people who are not full-time intercessory missionaries than those of us who are. King David, father of the prayer movement, if we can call him that. One thing, Psalm 27 for King David was not a Levite. He's really more of a model for all of you guys in here who are not full-time intercessory missionaries um, than the ones of us who are doing that as our full-time job. So we already talked about um, point one here, his one thing desire, Psalm 27, 4. This was the burning desire of his heart. This was like the driving motivation of his life to dwell in the house of the Lord. Like if he could have put a sleeping bag in the, in the temple, he would have, or in the tabernacle. That would, he wanted to be in the presence of God all the time. Daily prayer rhythms. Psalm 55, 18, David is saying that he cried out to the Lord evening, morning, and noon. Not 24-7, but like three times a day. I think Daniel prayed three times a day as well. There's something about this morning, noon, and night prayer rhythm that's really, really biblical. This is, there's a lot of houses of prayer, a lot of praying churches. Upper room in Dallas, they have the, the morning, noon, and evening. And that's like, that's the rhythm of daily prayer. And David made that the, his daily rhythm of prayer. 
<clears throat> danced in a linen ephod. This is the, the story that we, we love of when David danced before um, the Ark of the Covenant. And I don't know if any of you guys grew up with the song Undignified in your youth group worship. <laughs> I'll become even more undignified than this. And it was telling that story of David dancing before the Lord. Um, and sometimes people tell that story, and they're like, David danced naked. David danced in his underwear. And that's why it was scandalous. And his wife is looking out the window, like mocking him. That's not quite what was happening. He wasn't dancing in his underwear. He actually took off his kingly garments and put on priestly garments. He was dancing in a linen ephod. That's not a loincloth. That's, you look back at what the priests were supposed to wear. That's what the priests were supposed to wear. He was trying to get away with being a priest as much as, as, much as he could. And he took some flack for it, especially in that moment. But the Lord loved it. You know, God's not shy about slapping anyone's hand who acts like a priest in ways that they're not supposed to. People have gotten in big trouble for that. David did not get in trouble for this. The Lord loved this. <clears throat> he called God his portion in Psalm 6 or Psalm 16. I'm going to touch on this a little bit more in depth um, a little bit later this evening. Um, but David borrowed this priestly language where God said to the priest, I will be your portion. David took that upon himself. He said, God, you are my portion, you are my inheritance. And really God had used that language specifically talking to the priests. And David just kind of had in his heart, you know what, I'm not a Levite, but I am part of a kingdom of priests. I'm part of a priestly nation. I'm just gonna step into this and claim it as mine. I'm just gonna decide, I'm gonna live my life as a priest and God is going to be my portion. He just decided to live that way. I love it. And then, of course, what we often talk about him for and remember him for, he financed and organized the Levites. Um, so there was already the uh, Mosaic worship, the, the sacrificial system happening, and David just got in his heart, we need to do something else. We need to do, like, more. Um, and he, so that's when he started what we look back on, on as, um, you know, the 24-7 worship tent, David's 24-7 prayer room that God said, I'm going to restore the tabernacle of David. Th this is it. He, he financed, he poured thousands and thousands of his own dollars into funding the full-time intercessory missionaries, the priests in the house of God. And he did, he did all the organizing, all the drafting. He set everything up. He like designed a whole bunch of musical instruments. He like put every bit of energy that he could into building the house of prayer. And again, he himself wasn't a priest. He was the financial partner on the outside, just so loving the prayer movement and wanting to, to pour his resources into it. Um, he was the volunteer staff doing the behind the scenes admin so that someone else could actually be the one on the stage 24 seven. He was just pouring every bit of resource and attention and energy into it that he could um, to build the house of God without actually being full time himself. That's the coolest thing to me, King David. <clears throat> All right, priests since the beginning. I think this... This revelation, looking at the idea of priesthood in the Garden of Eden, going all the way back to the beginning, this is what blew my mind when I first started getting a hold of this and started realizing this priesthood thing, this is, this is deep. <laughs> this, is, this goes all the way back to the origins of humanity. 
So priesthood wasn't a result of the fall. Priesthood wasn't just an institution of the law. The idea of priesthood isn't just to make atonement, to do the ceremony, to stand between God and man, to cover the sin. Like That's kind of part of what it became. But God called Adam to be a priest originally in the garden. Priesthood is from day one, design of humanity. The Garden of Eden is called the Garden of the Lord. Um, I found a few different verses that use that phrase. I think of this as like the deeper magic. You have the deep magic, but beyond that, at the dawn of time, the deeper magic that we were always meant to be priests. So really, we could even say that Eden was like the first tabernacle or the first the first house of prayer because it was a place set apart for God and man to to meet to enjoy fellowship for Adam to minister to the Lord um, and for God to encounter Adam and Eve and God walked in the cool of the day Um, there's this idea in how ancient palaces were designed, that the king would have his palace, and then he'd have a garden where he would, you know, take a break from all his busy king stuff, and then go out and just walk through the garden, and that's where he would take his rest. That, so that's really kind of the idea and the pattern of, of Eden, that it was, like, if you can imagine, you know, the palace of God, the throne room of God, the New Jerusalem, and then over to the side a little bit somewhere within that whole vicinity, you've got the Garden of Eden, and that's where God placed Adam and Eve, and that's where he would go and walk with them and meet with them, fellowship with him. That's where they would minister to him. Um, if you, you can actually look at the New Jerusalem described in Revelation 22, and you can, like, you can find so This is not a house of prayer idea. You can Google so many articles and studies from people of all different backgrounds. Like the parallels of Eden and the New Jerusalem are crazy. Like it's kind of almost the exact same thing. <clears throat> so Adam was commissioned as a priest. Um, in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam to work and take care of the garden, or some translations say tend and keep. So Adam's supposed to be... Um, like when you read it at first glance, your probably natural first thought, at least mine was like, oh, Adam's supposed to be a gardener. He's supposed to like prune the trees and water the lawn, and he's supposed to like plant tomatoes and then harvest the tomatoes. And growing up, my mom, um, not not all of my life, but for a while, we had a garden. Um, And so there was a lot of time that my mom spent in the garden, you know, digging and weeding and doing all of these things and tying back the tomato plants because you have to like tie them to a stake so they don't grow crazy. Um, But Adam was not primarily called to be a farmer. Like that's not the holy ancient calling of humanity is to tie back tomato plants. Like that that wasn't really God's God's point here. <clears throat> the, the Hebrew words behind work and take care of are abad and shamar. Abad and Shamar. So Abad and Shamar, Abad is translated serve in a lot of contexts. And Shamar, uh, it has to do with this idea of watchful, careful, protective keeping. You could translate it like guard, serve and guard. Adam was supposed to be serving and guarding the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. He was supposed to be ministering and serving in the presence of God as a priest. So really... How did the snake even get in there? 
maybe the first failure that led to the fall was Adam wasn't guarding the garden. He's supposed to serve and guard the presence of God. <clears throat> and when you look at those two words, where they appear, um, other places in scripture, those two words like together as a phrase or like in the same sentence referring to the same thing, you find them, and I'm pretty sure you only find them in this context, is related to the priesthood. Top of page three, um, numbers. I'm going to read this verse in the ESV because it makes these words really clear. You and your son shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil and you shall serve. So that's guard, shamar, and abad, serve. Um, it's the same words that were used in the Garden of Eden for Adam's first calling. So again, this isn't something that we got from the, the Mosaic law or you know, that, that covenant. This, this, this is deeper. This is more ancient. Priesthood is from before the fall. This is the original design of humanity. Just as a general biblical principle, anytime you want to know like what's God's original design, how is this supposed to look? Look at the bookends. Look at the beginning of the story and the end of the story. Look at Genesis. Look at Revelation. Look at the Garden of Eden. Look at the New Jerusalem. If everything's messed up in between, but Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem, you'll see what God actually um, intends, what his design for humanity is. God's original design for humanity was for us to serve as priests. Abad and Shamar. I can't, I can't, I talk about Abad and Shamar like any excuse I ever get. <clears throat> Adam was a worship leader. So this, go study it out yourself because there isn't full agreement on this, but I think the case is pretty strong. Ezekiel 28 is a prophecy about the, the destruction of the king of Tyre. And there is a part of it that you're, you're reading it and you're like, wait, whoa, this is about the king of Tyre? I don't think this part is about the king of Tyre. And it's clearly about someone who was in, like, in heaven, in the Garden of Eden, in, in the presence of God. Um, so traditionally, most of the Gentile church has interpreted that as being about Lucifer and the fall of Lucifer. Um, but there's actually a lot of scholars, Christian and Jewish, and I think this is actually the predominant perspective of Judaism, is that this passage is actually about the fall of Adam, not Lucifer. Ezekiel 28, I, that's my opinion. I don't think it is really about Satan. I think it is actually about Adam. So let's read this passage here. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald. Topaz, onyx, I think, and jasper. Lapis lazuli, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings, or another translation, timbrels and pipes, were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, or some translations say you were with a guardian cherub. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. So if this was Adam, let's just imagine, if this was Adam, this is describing Adam like in the throne room or in heaven. This is like there's some sort of overlap between the Garden of Eden and the actual like 
revelation for presence of God, like fiery stones. I, I don't think that was just out, you know, in the dirt next to the apple tree. Like that was something in somewhere else. Um, and if you start looking at these details, and again, there's so many details here, like go study it out. I'm really curious in your opinion. Um, but the stones that are listed, all, the, all these precious stones as his covering or every precious stone adorned you, they're almost identical to the stones that are listed on the priest's breastplate in Exodus 28. Because remember, the priests had certain garments and certain things that they wore, um, and there were certain stones that were on their breastplate, and it's almost the exact same list. Um, and I was trying to, there's, you know, discussion and stuff about, oh, why isn't it exactly the same? Like, oh, well, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is actually the same. So, like, maybe something was lost in translation somewhere. I don't know. But it's at least very, very close. <clears throat> And if that's the case, then Adam is like described as being adorned in priestly garments with that ceremonial um, priestly, the items, the clothing. Then this is fun, musical instruments. So that phrase settings and mountings is difficult to translate. Like in my ESV, there's a note at the bottom. The Hebrew is difficult to translate. And so every version just kind of does their best, but no one really knows quite what that is. Um, but it's possible, and there's actually some translations, and as I was looking in, you know, Bible Hub or Bible Gateway, where it lists, like, all the different translations, every one that's, like, Jewish Bible, Hebrew, like, all the, all the ones that seem to be more Jewish-inspired Bibles, they all translated it as some form of musical instrument. So it's possible that the more accurate translation has to do with musical instruments. I think that's actually the translation in New King James and probably King James, which is where we get the idea that Lucifer was a worship leader. So if you've ever heard this, oh yeah, before the fall, Satan was a worship leader. That's why he knows the power of music. That's probably true that he knows the power of music, but the idea where the church got, or the place the church got that idea that Satan was originally a, a worship leader is from this one verse in Ezekiel 28 from a phrase that's hard to translate. But it, that, that would be like, if so, we're getting that from the translation of that settings and mountings is actually timbrels and pipes. So if, if, if we're going to interpret that as anyone being a worship leader, it's based on this translation of timbrels and pipes. But in context here, what if it's not Satan? What if it was actually Adam? What if this is actually talking about Adam being like a worship leader, playing musical instruments as part of his priestly ministry before God in the Garden of Eden slash the New Jerusalem throne room, whatever way all of that overlap works. And that, that brings me to the mountain of God. So this verse in Ezekiel 28, 13 and 14, it says, it describes this person, which I'm arguing is Adam, as being um, in two locations. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. So is, is he like, he's, one day he's here and the other day he's here? Or is it saying like, he was kind of in both places because kind of both places were the same. That there was some sort of overlap between um, the holy mount of God and the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God. So the mount of God, the mountain of God, 
it refers, that's like, you do a study on that phrase, you'll go down so many rabbit holes. That, um, it can refer to the, to Mount Zion, the literal, like you can find it on a map in Israel where the temple was. Um, or it can refer to Mount Sinai sometimes where the fire of God came down and he encountered the people of Israel, launched the nation. Um, or it can refer to like the mountain of God in heaven that's part of the new Jerusalem, like the new Jerusalem, part of like the architecture and the landscaping of the new Jerusalem. So what if Adam was actually somehow, there is like some sort of overlap between the realm of Eden and the realm of the mountain of God slash heaven. What if heaven was on earth? I didn't even put this in my notes, but I love this idea. What if heaven was actually on earth? Because at the end of the story, remember bookends, Genesis, Revelation, at the end of the story, we know that New Jerusalem is coming back down. He's restoring all things. He's re he, that's res it's a restoration of all things, which means it was like that before. What if heaven was actually on earth. And why wouldn't it be? Like, God didn't have to get out of the way of sin. There was nothing contaminating the earth. What if the new Jerusalem was actually on the earth at that time, and then things got bad and it left, and then someday it's coming back? So all of that to say, I think Adam really was this person in Ezekiel 28. He was definitely for sure a priest uh, ministering in the actual direct presence of God in the Garden of Eden. This calling to priesthood goes all the way back to the beginning. <clears throat> this is in like the core DNA of humanity. All right, so flipping to the other bookend, Priests in Eternity. That was ancient, ancient dawn of time. Let's look at the, the, the um, transition of the age and the eternity after this age. So not everything that we are called to do right now is eternal, and we know that. There's plenty of kinds of ministry that at some point are going to become obsolete. We won't need them anymore. We won't evangelize anymore when everyone's saved and in heaven together forever. Like there's, we won't need to feed the poor anymore when, when Jesus is ruling on earth in, etern in eternity forever. Um, there's a lot of kind of ministry that just at some point is going to be outdated and unnecessary, um, but we're always going to be priests. In Revelation, John sees this whole vision of the whole, um, the whole storyline, and then he sits down to write the book, and he sits down to write chapter one. He's like, oh my gosh, I have to write all this down. How am I ever going to condense everything I just saw and get it down on paper? But one of the first things he does is he describes the identity of the church, and he describes the church as a priesthood. <clears throat> Revelation 1.6, etc. We'll get to reading a couple of those verses in a minute. Um, worship forever. We'll, we'll be doing a lot of things in the new heaven and the new earth forever. And this is something Brad has touched on and will definitely touch on more what eternity looks like, what the millennium looks like, what, um, what our roles in the, in the kingdom of God on the earth are going to look like. Um, 
But one thing for sure, we're going to be worshiping forever. That will always be our central activity. Um, just for fun, I looked up how many verses I could find that had to do with worshiping forever. We will praise you forever. Forever we will worship. There's, there's a lot. And you could say, oh, this is just hyperbole. You know, people get emotional. They write poems like, I'll do this forever. Well, probably, you're probably really just saying that because you're writing a nice poem or a nice song. But this is the Bible. <laughs> The Bible doesn't have as much hyperbole as we like to think. If, if it's in there, good, there's a good chance God probably meant it. It's probably a lot more literal than we give it credit for most of the time. We, your people, will praise you forever. And that's Psalm uh, 76.13, just one example of a lot of verses that are very, very similar. We're going to be worshiping forever, which I think this room already knows, but why not restate it and just remind ourselves? We're going to be worshiping forever. There's a point in Revelation that's really, really fascinating. Revelation 3.12. It's actually before even all the crazy stuff. Crazy stuff starts in like chapter 6 with the judgments and all of that. But even in the relatively tame part of the book, in the letters to the churches, um, there is a promise to the church of Philadelphia that Jesus gave that if they overcome they would get to stay in the temple of God forever and never have to leave. That is an available reward to at least these people God promised it to, which makes me think this is like available in Jesus' collection of rewards that he gives out to some people from time to time. This is a reward that's available to stay in the temple forever and never have to leave. Maybe there will be some who do have to leave that we all spend time there sometimes, but we all have other roles and responsibilities in the new heavens and the new earth reigning alongside of Jesus. You know, if you're the governor of Texas in Jesus' kingdom, you're not gonna spend 24 seven in the throne room because you gotta go out and take care of Texas. But what if, like, and there's, like he's saying that there's some people who actually their job description forever is to stay in the temple. And when I saw this, I was like, oh my gosh, what do I have to do to get that reward? What is Jesus looking for that he would give someone permission for the rest of eternity to be in the throne room of God and never have to leave, to be a pillar in the temple of God? And that, like, let's just let that provoke our hearts a little bit and get, like, get a fire in you. What do I have to do to get that reward? Let's just set this as like our life vision to to where we show up before the throne of Jesus and he said, you lived your life in such a way that guess what? You get to stay in the throne room forever. Whew. I know there's a lot of cool things to be done in the, in the future, in the new heavens and new earth, but I don't think anything tops this. Reigning with him as priest. So that reward is available to some select few, um, but we're all going to reign alongside of him as priests, specifically. <clears throat> we'll be worshiping and reigning alongside of him as a kingdom of priests, like both of those, not just a priesthood of priests, not just a kingdom of kings, a kingdom of priests. 
Revelation 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Revelation 20, verse 5, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And then I threw in this Isaiah 61, which in context, if you read the chapter, this is also talking about the millennial kingdom. You will be called priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. Um, There's something about reigning and priesting that go hand in hand. Something from God's perspective, like he really, he wants, he wants worshipers, but he wants to co-rule the universe alongside those worshipers. He doesn't want to um, like just have his priests over here and his co-rulers over here. He wants them to be the same group of people. He wants to reign alongside his priests. And those two things go hand in hand. They're supposed to be intertwined. Um, We're going to be priests forever. And as priests, we're going to be ruling alongside him. So we can even take that mindset like now, whatever else you do, whatever else your calling is, if you feel called to um, be a pastor of a church, if you feel called to work with foster kids, if you want to feel called to be an awesome, godly, small business owner, whatever else your calling is, do it as a priest. Your first calling is priesthood. And then from there, we also get to do the overflow of of doing the kingdom work alongside of him. But we start from the foundation of the priesthood. All right, so going from there into... um, what I call two priestly directions. This is going to sound a little bit confusing at first, but I promise I'm going to make it make sense. It is my job to make it make sense, and I take my job seriously. So by the time we all walk out of here, it's going to make sense. So a priest stands in the gap between heaven and earth, right? priest stands in the gap between God and people. And it reminds me, if we were using slides right now, I would play that scene from Captain America Civil War where he's um, he's like, the Bucky's taking off in the helicopter and he's running and trying to take the helicopter from taking off. So he like sprints off the edge of the building, grabs the helicopter, grabs the edge of the building and he's like, he's like trying to pull the helicopter back down. And he succeeds by the way, like the helicopter comes crashing down back onto the building. Um, He's pulling heaven and earth together. He's standing in the gap and pulling the two together, uniting heaven and earth, the helicopter and the building. So when you come into this room to serve as a priest, just think I'm Captain America. (laughs) So in doing that, in uniting heaven and earth, priests face two directions. Priests face God and like talk to God, minister to God, and then we turn around and we minister to people. So for sake of illustration this evening, God is over here, stage left. Humanity is over here, stage right. So we face God in worship and prayer. Jesus, you're holy, you're worthy. We're talking to him, we're ministering to him, we're interceding. And then from there, we get filled up. We get his heart, we get what he wants to say, what he wants to do, and then we turn around and we release that to the rest of the world. The priesthood is, it's two directional. There's two parts of the priesthood. As we minister to God, he also calls us to represent him to the world. So there's these two directions are expressed in four activities. Adoration, intercession, proclamation, preparation. So adoration, intercession, proclamation, preparation. So here's how that works. 
we're representing people before God, and then we're representing God before people. And Jesus did this perfectly. He's the only one who can do this, like, no metaphor at all. In the perfect, most literal sense, Jesus represents us before God and God before us. So he started a new priesthood with himself as a high priest. So this priesthood that we are in, it is with Jesus as our head, with Jesus as the high priest. So as the, as the God-man, as fully God and fully man, Jesus is in this really unique position as a high priest where he gets to stand before the Father and say, Father, when you look at me, see the perfect, true expression of humanity. See what humanity is meant to be. And see them covered in my blood. See them through the filter of me. So he is representing humanity before God as a man. As a man, he is showing God what humanity is supposed to be. And then he turns around and before us, he re re represents who God is to us. The perfect representation of the Father. <clears throat> He's the only one who could do this. It has to be a God. It has to be God, but it has to be man. It's he only he could do this perfectly in those two roles. And then everything we do is kind of a dim echo of what he did. <clears throat> this two direction thing. This is parallel to the first and second commandments. So first commandment: love God with heart, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second is like it love your neighbor as yourself, right? So love God this way, love people this way. It's two directions. A lot of things in scripture kind of parallel to first and second commandment. We minister to others out of the overflow of ministering to God, just like as the, as the first commandment says, we, we minister, we love others out of the overflow of loving God first. So as priests, we stand before God on behalf of the people, um, first of all, in worship, and second, in intercession, or just to make them rhyme, I'm going to say adoration and intercession. Um, so in worship, we're, we're not represent necessarily like worshiping on behalf of people, although you could probably make an argument for that too, but we're representing ourselves as well. I am a human. I am standing before God, representing myself, giving him my individual worship. Um, and then I'm also interceding on behalf of a whole bunch of other people. So the highest calling of a priest is worship. Number one, above everything else, worship is the highest calling of a priest. If we had a pie chart, and these four activities were like on the, on the pie chart, worship would be way more than a quarter. Worship would, I don't even want to say what percentage it would be. It would be a lot. A lot of that pie chart would be worship. That's our number one priority as priests. And so from there, though, then we have a foundation to do everything else because worship is agreeing with who God is. Simple definition of worship, worship is agreeing with who God is. And then from there, we have a foundation to ask him to act according to who he is. We call that intercession. God, we know you're merciful. Praise you. You are merciful. Now, please be merciful in this situation. We agree with who he is, and then we ask him to do what he is, who he is um, in that situation. And then from there, we have a foundation to speak the truth of who he is in proclamation and to participate in his plans in preparation. But it all starts from that foundation of worship, of agreeing with who he is. If, we've got, if we don't have that in first place, everything else falls apart. <clears throat> 
So worship as our sacrifice. I have some verses here. I love Psalm uh, 141, verse 2, um, because this is, this is Old Testament. They had actual like physical sacrifices at this time, and yet still the psalmist had tapped into God's heart to know that really what he was after was the heart. It says, may my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. So that's almost like New Testament language buried in the Old Testament. This guy got it. And then we have all the New Testament verses. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 13, Romans 12. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Um, then 1 Peter 2, 9, we already read this. But you are a, holy, a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. That you may declare. Like, why are you a royal priesthood? Here is the reason why you are a royal priesthood. That you may declare. This is the point of you being a priest so that you can praise him. It's the number one priority of priesthood. Um, then secondly, from there, we lead into intercession. Um, our inter at, at one time, intercession was literal sacrifices offered to cover sin. Like you have to kill the bull in order to for that blood to cover sin because without blood there is no forgiveness of sin. Now we have we have Jesus' blood, so we don't we don't do that particularly. Our intercession is through through prayer and asking God to move. Um, most of the time, if we don't pray, he doesn't move. Like, God has actually limited himself. He could do whatever he wants without any of us. But he's limited himself, that he's chosen to restrict himself, that there's some things he doesn't do until one of his friends asks him to do it. He's actually limited himself. God has limited himself. He has bound himself to our intercession. <clears throat> Ezekiel 22.30 says, I looked for someone among them who would build up a wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so, that, so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. He was looking for an inter intercessor. God wants to be merciful. He has abundant mercy. He wants to release mercy. He's just waiting for someone to ask him. This week, I was, or maybe last week, I was reading Job. And the end of Job just caught my attention. So in Job, if you remember, all of his friends are saying crazy, wrong, unhelpful things. And then finally, God shows up and sets the record straight. And he basically says to Job's friends, I am really mad at you guys. My anger burns hot against you. We are not okay right now. Um, so this is what you need to do. Go ask Job to pray for you. And he will sacrifice on your behalf and pray to you. And then I'll have mercy on you and not destroy you like I really probably should. And that was his direction. Go ask Job to pray for you. Go to Job and he's going to pray for you. <clears throat> God, like he, he's looking for that intercessor because he's bound himself to partnership. What if Job was just like, no, I don't want to. I am mad at my friends and you just go ahead and burn them all up. 
Maybe he would have, but he had bound himself to intercession. He was looking for an intercessor. He's looking for one of his friends who would stand in the gap and ask him to do what he already wanted to do. That's the great thing about intercession. I remind myself of that sometimes while I'm praying. Like, I'm not asking you to do anything you don't already want to do. This is in your heart. I'm just agreeing with you. You already want to do this, so I'm just agreeing with you. I'm not like begging and pleading and trying to convince you to do something that's opposite of your character. No, you want to be merciful. You want to move in this situation. I'm just agreeing with what you already want to do and asking you to do it because that's what you told me to do. You just said you wanted a partner, and so here I am. I'm saying the simple thing on the mic again, just asking you to do what you already want to do. So these two things are this direction. We are representing humanity before God. Um, Adoration, intercession, and then we turn around and we're representing God before humanity in proclamation and preparation. So as we stand facing God, as we stand in his presence, ministering to him, he fills us with his word. We encounter truth. We're transformed. We get reality deeply planted in our spirits. And then we actually have something to say so that we can turn around and say it. If you try to be a teacher or a forerunner, I'm going to be a messenger, of da, 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 and you aren't actually spending that time before him, you're just going to like run dry in about 10 seconds and talk in circles and not make sense to anybody. So we have to get, get that message in us from our time standing before him. This way, facing this way in his presence, fuels everything we're doing in this direction. Proclamation. This actually, this goes all the way back to what the Levitical priests were doing. The priests were responsible for teaching the law to the people. There wasn't a whole org chart of these are the priests and these are the teachers and these are the pastors. No, the priests were kind of, kind of it. There were also some prophets. But the priests were primarily responsible. Um, I mean, they were, they were the pr- people who were primarily responsible um, for teaching the law to the people. So we also, as priests, teach the word of God, proclaim his ways. Paul actually identified his ministry of preaching the gospel as priestly ministry. Romans 15, 16 says, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. That's not something I think about very often of like, you know, I'm, I'm sharing the gospel as a priest. This is, I am doing a priestly thing right now of, of sharing the gospel, but that's, that's what it is. It's like part two of being a priest. You first, you stand and minister to God. Then from that, you turn around and minister to others. And it's all, it's all priestly. It's all priesting. <clears throat> I love these verses uh, from the Old Testament that talk about what priests, how priests were supposed to be proclaimers, messengers. Malachi 2.7, for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. The lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. That's why it makes so much sense that we at the prayer room, like we're trying to be a forerunner ministry and that's why we have encounter service because we want it to be an overflow of our ministry to God in, in prayer room that like be, that turns into an overflow of, okay, now we have something to say, let's say it. Let's you know be those priests whose lips guard knowledge, um, who are able to have something accurate and helpful and holy and true to say to the people. 
Ezekiel 44, 23. They are to teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. In other words, the priests are supposed to be able to teach the people uh, right from wrong. The priests are supposed to be able to have that discernment to distinguish, okay, is this of the Lord or is this not? From that, that actually goes very closely right along with the ministry of preparation. You could kind of think of this as a sub point of proclamation. Um, And what kind of preparation I'm talking about? I'm really talking about the coming of the Messiah. The priests, uh, the Levitical priests, were, were preparing for the coming of the Messiah because God needed to have a people that were set apart, the unique nation who had the word of God, who had generations of tradition and heritage of being the people of God because he needed that tradition and that heritage for Jesus to be born into. So the priests in guarding the spiritual health of the community were really preparing the way for the Messiah. And I believe um, one thing that I've, I've learned is that there's, there was kind of this um, understanding or maybe misunderstanding um, in Judaism that that they had to be holy so that the Messiah could come. Like that was one of the reasons they were like so strict and so intense on all of the laws and all the details because they're like, we need a Messiah. Things are bad. Okay, you all better be keeping the Sabbath because we got to get the Messiah to come. And they, they had that little bit of a misunderstanding, but it was from a perspective of it's our job to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then we have that same ministry, of course, today. We're a forerunner ministry. We're preparing the way of the Lord for the Messiah's second coming. Isaiah 43, chapter 40, verse 3. This is the verse that's kind of the anchor point of John the Baptist's ministry. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And actually, although John the Baptist wasn't himself a priest, his father was a priest. He was from a priestly line. God actually raised up someone from a priestly line to do this job of preparing the way of the Lord for Jesus' first coming. And same thing today. He wants to use his priests, his people who are ministering to him in the place of prayer and worship to be the ones who prepare the way for, for the second coming of the Messiah. So all of this prayer and worship and end time stuff, it's really two sides of the same coin. It's all intertwined together. We really can't have one without the other. I want to talk a little bit about priestly consecration and what it means to be set apart. Because that's part of the deal of being a priest. We are set apart from the rest of society, from the rest of the ways of the world, so that we could be completely devoted to God. I look, I don't always do this, um, like look up words in the dictionary, um, but I did for consecration. Part of the uh, Merriam-Webster definition is to devote irrevocably to the worship of God. I love that. Let's just add that to our all like theological dictionaries. To devote irrevocably to the worship of God. That is the definition of consecration. So all of us are, as believers are called to be set apart from the things of the world. And the more seriously we take our priesthood, the more internalized that becomes, the more we find ourselves becoming more set apart from the world. 
the Levitical priests, they're set apart from the rest of the community with several, like a bunch of really specific things that they were called to do and not do, and they had the special priestly garments and all of these. Um, there were, they had a very specific ceremony in Leviticus 8 that initiated them into the priesthood, certain sacrifices, certain anointings, all of that. They also had additional holiness laws that were more strict than the laws for the rest of the people. Something that was not sin for your average Benjaminites or whatever other tribe to do would be sin for a priest because God separated the priest um, in a heightened way. Um, for example, there were, they, there were more strict laws about going near dead bodies. Also really interesting, they, um, didn't ha they could only marry someone who had never been previously married to a non-priest. So they had to marry a virgin or the widow of a priest. Um, that was a little bit more relaxed for the rest of the people of Israel, but for the priests, they had a few extra things just to really drive home the point, be the exclamation point. You guys are different. You guys are set apart. You are consecrated for the worship of God. You don't have quite all of the freedoms that everyone else does. <clears throat> so for us, um, we are set apart from the ways of the world. We're familiar with Romans 12:2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, so we don't have the ceremonial holiness laws. This looks a little different for us. We kind of—it's a little bit more subjective. We kind of have to just wrestle through it and figure it out. Um, what does it look like to be consecrated from the world, in the world, but not of it? That's a whole wrestle that we all continually are trying to figure out. Like, what's okay? What's not okay? what it looks like to be consecrated. Um, but really, we're, we're not supposed to, I think mostly, it, start, it starts right here in Romans 12, um, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because I could preach this message and just say like, okay, don't watch bad TV and don't listen to this and make sure you're careful of da 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 and just make a whole list of like all the don'ts of like specific ways to not engage with culture or whatever. Um, but really, it starts with our mind. It starts like don't, don't have the same mindset and priorities as the rest of the culture. Because the rest of the culture is going to be like, we all have a drive to have a purpose. And if your purpose isn't God, you're just going to make your purpose something else. So everyone has some sort of driving force, whether it's ambition or success or your political ideology or entertainment or whatever. Everyone has like these life priorities. And we're not supposed to have those same priorities. We're supposed to have our minds set on things above. So we're above all of the drama and controversy and desires of the culture. We need to be priests who are not conforming to the pattern of the world. We actually have something to say. This goes right back to the point about proclamation and preparation. We need to have something to say that isn't just echoing what everyone else is saying, but we just slap a Jesus sticker on it. When we open our mouths to talk about um, what God's doing in the world or, or anything, it needs to sound different. It needs to sound like it came from somewhere else. If it just sounds like you're parroting whatever someone else in the culture is saying, that's not, that's not where the priest is supposed to be speaking from. So we want to be consecrated and set apart from the things of the world. And sometimes that does mean be careful of what TV you watch and things like that. I know for me, uh, I just feel like 
it is a lot harder to connect with God when I've been inundating myself with entertainment and media and even not necessarily like bad things. Now um, it's harder to walk into the prayer room and have like a real connection with God. Um, I've been doing a Bible reading plan since the beginning of January and it's been so much easier to walk into the prayer room because I already like I was listening to the, the audio Bible in the car as opposed to listening to some audio novel or something. I remember there was a couple of years ago, I was going through the Hunger Games series on audio, and I would listen to it in the car, and I'm like, Katniss in the arena, and yeah, come on, and like all this Hunger Games stuff. Then I'd sit right here and try to lead worship, and my mind was like, not here, because <laughs> I'm still like somewhere else in that fictional universe, which isn't a bad thing, but like, it wasn't helping me be very consecrated, let's say. So if you know you, figure that out between you and the Lord, what's actually going to help you be set apart uh, from the things of the world and just make sure that your priorities are in the right place. So we want to be consecrated and set apart as priests. Um, I want to talk briefly, very briefly, about the fragrance uh, of our worship. I mentioned this a little bit, that our worship, um, it actually becomes incense rising before the throne of God. Um, and we have this, we talk about, we, I keep saying like minister to the Lord. He actually feels ministered to. Like earlier we did that prophetic ministry time and whenever you get you know, someone to pray for you, someone to minister to you, you, you get those warm fuzzies. You feel loved, you feel blessed, you feel ministered to. When we minister to the Lord, he feels ministered to. When we bless the Lord, he feels blessed. It actually impacts his heart. And I think the, the, like the incense is like a tangible, or as intangible as smoke is or whatever, but a visible, like a real um, expression of, of how our prayer and worship impacts his heart. <clears throat> as you're reading about the, like the sacrifices in the, the, the sacrificial system, it talks about a pleasing aroma, pleasing aroma, let it be a pleasing aroma. Sacrifice this as a pleasing aroma. It acts, it's actually pleasing. God likes it. Prayer has a smell and it smells good to God. Then for us today, um, even not having those actual burnt offerings, um, we see our prayers as incense. Revelation 5 is really the clearest place we see this. Four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So our prayers are actually incense that arise before the throne of God. And I like to imagine what that looks like, because we can't see it. It's real, but it's invisible to us right now. Just because it's invisible doesn't mean it's not real. But we have to activate the eyes of faith a little bit to be able to connect with the reality of what our incense actually is. But I like to imagine if you were God looking down at you know the region of, of DFW, the whole Metroplex, some places have incense coming out of them and some don't. There are some, there's, oh, there's a church, there's a prayer room, there's a person in their car. I see the columns of smoke coming out of these places where there are Christians praying. And then there's, you know, places, there's no one saved over there and there's no incense coming off of it. But look, I see some incense. I see some incense. There's some smoke. There's some prayer over there. If we could see in the spiritual realm the incense of our prayers, oh my gosh, I think that would impact us so much. 
when I tell people about um, even joining the sacred trust at the prayer room, um, I like to say we just want so much incense coming out of this room. If there's three people in the room, we're praying with all our hearts. We got some incense, but what if there? What like all of these chairs were filled on just you know a Tuesday morning in the prayer room? We had so much incense coming out of this place. That's really the goal. So when we invite people to to, to join Sacred Trust, we're just saying come add your incense to ours. Come help us give God more worship because he's worthy of all of it. Come give him incense with us. That's what we're saying. Mary of Bethany, the fragrance of her worship. Um, When Mary of Bethany in John 12, she pours out her alabaster jar um, of perfume at Jesus' feet. And it says the fragrance filled the house. Why was that detail important to mention? Like it's kind of rare for the Bible just to provide these extra sensory details. Like we don't we don't know the, the you know what what color the house was painted, what Mary was wearing, what color her hair was. Like, like there's so many details that it doesn't give us. So if it gives us a detail, let's like dig into that. Okay, God, why did you give us this detail? What are you saying here? The fragrance of her perfume. It says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. John 12, 3. I think it's actually tying that back into the idea of priestly worship. Her worship and pouring out that perfume. Yeah, the perfume smelled good because it's perfume. But to God, there was a fragrance of her offering that's the same as the fragrance of our offering. And God was, was highlighting the priestliness of what Mary did. Right, priestly inheritance. I'm going to wrap up with this um, point here. This is probably my favorite point in this teaching. After, after the Garden of Eden, this is my second favorite part right here and something I've been meditating on a lot. So when we set, we're set apart as priests to minister to God, he gives us himself. He gives us the most precious gift he can give. And this is true for all believers. You get saved, you become a priest, whether you know it or not, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, he gives you himself. But the more we lean into the reality of being priests, the more real and experiential that becomes, the more we get to tap into the reality of God giving us himself. We say we get more of God. That's the phrase we use sometimes. Um, And we have the fullness of God, but we experience more of God is probably really what we mean there. We choose this by embracing our priestly ministry to God. So the Levites, um, they were set apart, like I said, in some unique ways. One of the most unique ways was they didn't have a land inheritance the same as the rest of the tribes. So when God you know, brought them into the promised land, was setting up the, the boundaries of the nation, and even before they were in the promised land, when he was setting, setting it up way back even um, when giving the law, he said, the Levites don't have land. Judah, your land's over there. Gad, your land is over there. Asher, your land is over there. The Levites don't have land. Every other tribe gets land. The Levites get no land. Why? Because God himself is their inheritance. Numbers 18.20, the Lord said to Aaron, you will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. 
So you could look at this and say, God, that's not fair. Why didn't the Levites get land? You're beating up on them. They're priests and it's supposed to be this great privilege. Well, they didn't get any land, so what's up with that? But no, no, no. They get God. Really, the rest of those poor tribes, that wasn't a promise for them in this strong, unique way. The Levites, they have no room to complain about not having land because they get God. <clears throat> And we see this again in Psalm 16, um, verses 5 and 6, which was written by David. This is what I said. David was using priestly language, and he wasn't even a priest. A word used synonymously in Scripture with inheritance is portion. So you see portion, think inheritance. is pretty much the same thing in Scripture. Um, so the psalmist spoke of God being their portion. There's a bunch of different passages where that happens. Um, not all of the psalmists were Levites. A bunch of them were. Some were not. David was not. David wrote Psalm 16, and he borrowed that language of God is my portion, God is my inheritance, as though he were a Levite. But let's look at it. God, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. This is priestly language. This is like directly alluding to that thing in Numbers where God said, I am your inheritance. You don't have any other inheritance. You alone are my portion. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. So I have heard people talk about the boundary lines as though that's like rules, the law, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. And in our contemporary language, a boundary is usually like an intangible idea of like, oh, don't cross my boundary, don't talk to me like that, or that's a boundary, you're not allowed to do that. It, it has more to do with behavior than like lines in the dirt. To Israel, it was lines in the dirt. The boundary lines were those divisions of where your land was. You see, like, it's talking about different passages talking about injustice, like you've moved the boundary lines, you're cheating your neighbor out of that mile that was supposed to be his land or whatever. So like the boundary lines were literal, specific, physical things. Um, but here it's, it's describing boundary lines as not land inheritance, but God inheritance. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And David, in that Levitical priestly mindset, thinking of God as his inheritance and not having a land inheritance as the Levites, he's saying, it's okay if I don't have any other kind of inheritance, because you're my inheritance and that's enough. The boundary lines of you giving me yourself are good and pleasant, and I agree. And I think that that's something I've really been leaning into. Anyone who's been in any of my devos has probably heard me sing Psalm 16 within the last year or so, because I've just been really feeling myself like needing to lean into that, um, especially if I see other people in my life, like my younger siblings, having life experiences that I'm not, because their life path is different, but I might, there's a part of me that might wish I was getting married and buying a house and having babies. My sister is giving birth like at this moment, probably actually. So like my siblings are having these life experiences and I'm not, because I'm called to the house prayer, but it's okay. Like I'm reminding myself, the boundaries have fallen for me in pleasant places. This is good, this is right. Because the enemy will come and accuse. He'll say, God is holding out on you. God's withholding from you. It's the oldest lie in the book, going all the way back. This was the original temptation in the Garden of Eden. God knows if you have eat from that tree, 
you'll be like him, and he doesn't want you to be like him. It's the oldest lie. He just gives that accusation. God's holding out on you. God's withholding from you. No, it says you withhold from me no good thing. So I've just been declaring that over my own heart, and if that's an accusation you struggle with, I want to invite you into that with me. That we don't want to partner with the accusation of the enemy that the boundary lines of whatever God's given us, he's given us himself, are not good. So whatever you don't have in your life that you wish you did, whatever's not happening that you wish it were, it's okay. You're called as a priest. You get God. Whatever else it is you don't have, it's okay. You have God. The boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. And the more we lean into that calling as priests, the more we get to experience that become reality, the more we experience God being our portion. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And this happens, this is not just, you know, intercessory missionaries. This is all of us at the prayer room. Um, you, you miss out on someone's birthday party because you have your sacred trust. And you're going to be faithful to, as a priest in the house of God, by coming to your sacred trust, even though all of your friends are at the birthday party. The lines have fallen in pleasant places. You have a good inheritance. The Lord is your portion. It's okay. We all feel the pinch of this. Um, the more we lean into the reality of being priests, the more we're going to feel a pinch of this. But it's okay. God's our portion. So I just invite you to declare Psalm 16 over yourself, over and over and over and over. Mary of Bethany chose the good portion. Just want to hit this really quick. Luke 10:42. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And again, Mary is not a Levite that we know of. I'm pretty sure she's not. Um, when she, in this scene, she's sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his word. And Martha comes, and there is the accusation. You're wasting your time. This is, you know, what are you doing? This is unproductive. Your place is helping me, serving. Your place is doing. What are you doing just, like, being here with Jesus? And she doesn't have to say a word. Jesus defends her. And we get this beautiful, powerful verse. One thing is necessary. Kind of similar to David's one thing. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And I did, I, I've, in reading this verse in the ESV, it says the word portion. She's chosen the good portion. Not every translation says portion, but I was like, I want to see if my suspicion is accurate. Is that actually portion in the Greek? Is this what I think it is? Is this like a priestly inheritance kind of a deal? Yes, it is. I checked it out. I spent some time looking at the, like, the interlinear. And the, I went into the Septuagint, you guys. I went into Septuagint for you. It was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. I figured out how to compare all the stuff. It is actually the, the, the Greek word merida, um, which is the word for portion in relationship to that meaning of inheritance. Jesus is saying that Mary chose him as her priestly inheritance. This is, this is very much a priestly um, kind of thing. And, it's, and again, she chose it. This isn't just for the elites. This isn't just for the Levites. This isn't just for the intercessory missionaries. She just chose it. Just like David just chose it. She chose to recognize, like, I'm part of a kingdom of priests. We're all supposed to be priests. I'm going to respond to that invitation. A worship leader, you can come up. So we have that invitation to a life of priesthood before him. 
By default, you are already a priest, whether you like it or not. But you have a choice how much you can lean into that. I would love to see this community be full of King Davids who have a full-time something else, but their heart is just so for the house of prayer that they just lock into this identity as, as priests before him. We have that invitation awaiting us where we can choose to have God be our portion, and that's connected to choosing a life of priesthood. We talk about, you know, I want more of God, I want more of God. The way you get more of God is to lean into this identity as priesthood and just choose it like David, choose it like Mary, be, choose to be set apart from the things of the world, choose to embrace that pinch of things you're missing out on, um, quote unquote, missing out on, because God is better. You get God as your portion. So what? Anything else that you might be missing out on? We reject FOMO in Jesus' name. Uh, we just say no to that accusation. Jesus is our portion and he's better. Um, so I'm just gonna pray for us right now. Jesus, we choose you as our portion. We would rather have you as our inheritance than anything else. There's a lot of blessings in this life that you could choose to give us, but all of them pale in comparison to just having you as our portion and our inheritance. God, I ask that this community would be ones who lean into that calling as a priesthood. Full-time intercessory, intercessory missionary or not, like let's, let's lean into it. Let this be a community of Davids who just give themselves wholeheartedly to the priesthood, whatever else they have going on in life. God, I ask that uh, we would each feel this invitation to go deeper in the priesthood, ministering to you in adoration and intercession and then turning around and ministering to the rest of the world in proclamation and preparation. We love you and we invite you to write this truth on our hearts even deeper in Jesus' name. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.